Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, March 6, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. Akil Reed Amar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, Heather Gerken, Dean of the Yale Law School, and Denny Chin, U.S. Circuit Judge for the Second Circuit, discuss the evolution of the Supreme Court's views on civil rights throughout U.S. history. And now, enjoy the podcast. I am... Delighted uh, to be here, to be back here at the New York Historical Society, and to be here with two great uh, legal uh, scholars to talk about uh, civil rights and the Supreme Court. This is obviously a broad topic, um, but a very important one. And in our work on the court, um, I I confront issues of civil rights and and due process um, every day. and uh, we're trying to apply uh, decisions of the Supreme Court, both, both new ones uh, and uh, old ones. And sometimes uh, it is a, a struggle, even for us uh, circuit judges. Our focus tonight uh, is the 14th Amendment um, and the impact of, of the Supreme Court on, on civil rights. And this year marks the 150th anniversary of uh, the adoption uh, of uh, the 14th Amendment. It was, it was ratified by the states on July 9th, uh, 1868. And for the last 150 years, the 14th Amendment has impacted uh, every aspect uh, of our lives. Uh, and so we'll begin with uh, some uh, background. Um, Dean Gerken, uh, Heather, why don't you just tell us um, the significance of the 14th Amendment, uh, what does it mean, uh, and have our Supreme Court justices disagreed uh, as to its meaning over the years? Sure. So the 14th Amendment contains many provisions, but I think tonight we'll naturally focus on equality, which is a core value in this country and one that we are constantly working out and trying to figure out what it means. I would say that the Supreme Court has struggled to figure out what equality means in a changing world. Uh, and the, the best example of it, I'll just to give you one core disagreement that they have, is how do you think about the guarantee of the equal protection of the laws when it comes to, for example, racial discrimination? The court is divided. There are a number of justices, the more conservative ones, who say the meaning of the 14th Amendment, the purpose of the 14th Amendment, is to pull race out of decision-making. So they look for race neutrality. They don't want race, racial classifications to be involved. They want things to be race neutral. It's one, and that's sort of one conception of it. And so, for example, when those justices see affirmative action, they worry about it because they say, no, no, we're supposed to move beyond racial classifications. We're, the, the government should not take anyone's race into account in decision-making, and so they often invalidate affirmative action programs. The other justices, the more liberal justices, have a different conception of equality. Their view is that the purpose of the 14th Amendment is to make things equal, to, to bring up the groups that have been discriminated against the path 
in the past, and to pay attention to that. So, for example, for them, when they see affirmative action, they think, no, that's perfectly consistent with the 14th Amendment. Why? Because it's designed to protect the groups, to help the groups that they think the 14th Amendment was intended to protect. So you get two completely principled ideas. They're absolutely principled, each one of them. They're each coherent in its own way, but they are antithetical to one another in many of the cases that we see, which is why you so often see the Supreme Court dividing five to four, because they're not even using the same language to understand equality, and so they can't reach agreement with one another in these cases. They're starting with uh, the same words, and and how is it that they are, are in such disagreement? So the words are very broad. Uh, the words don't give a lot of definition for what they mean. The history is complicated. Akhil is the real expert on this. I know he's going to talk about it. But so justices do what they always do, which is they use a lot of interpretive tools, history, text, past precedent. And then they also think about purpose. What is the purpose of the 14th Amendment? And they're divided on what that purpose is. And as a result, they see everything through a quite different lens when they talk about these issues. Akhil, uh, this is a good transition. Can you give us... um some of the history and the background uh, of the 14th Amendment. Um, There was uh, bitter opposition from the former Confederate states. Why? Bitter is the right word. Uh, And uh, um, with apologies, I may go on just a little bit just to give you the, and I'll probably keep my other answers shorter, but this is the historical society. You need to know the deep history and background. So um, we start... Um, with a constitution that, um, in which North and South see the world differently from the beginning. Uh, when the constitution mentions the states, they're mentioned actually in North-South order. Uh, people at Philadelphia voted in North-South order, uh, state by state. People in the uh, co- uh, uh, Confederation Congress um, uh, uh, on the Articles of Confederation voted in North-South order. The signatures are actually, if you look at it carefully, they're in two columns in North-South order. And, and the basic difference between the, the, the North and the South is about slavery. That's at the founding. But at the founding, many of the great Southerners, especially the Virginians, they're slaveholders, but they know slavery is wrong. Um, they know it in their heart, and they don't want to bequeath it to their grandchildren. George Washington will provide for the freeing of the slaves. James Madison knows it's wrong. Thomas Jefferson, he wasn't there at Philadelphia. He talks a very good game, doesn't quite walk the walk. But um, uh, George Mason, a man who owns more slaves than anyone else at Philadelphia, gives a passionate speech about the evils of slavery. And it's a compromised document, and they put in a three-fifths clause that turns out to be be a big, big boost to the South because they get to count their slaves, albeit at a discount, not just in the House of Representatives, but in the Electoral College. And every president until Lincoln is a Southerner or basically a Northern man of Southern sympathies, a Northerner who doesn't mess with slavery. That would be the two Adamses when they're present. They don't mess with slavery John Quincy Adams only starts talking about messing with slavery when he's no longer president. His vice president is a South Carolinian named John C. Calhoun. Um, His father's running mate is a South Carolinian who doesn't win. Um, So all your presidents are Southerners or Northern men of Southern sympathies, basically, who are increasingly pro-slavery, the Northerners are, because the system is becoming increasingly pro-slavery. 
Um, and by the 1850s, the South has become a very different society than it was at the founding. Many of the Southerners are proudly anti-slavery. And so it's, a, it's fundamentally, a, you know, I think the word would be deplorable or rotten regime. Um, it's Nazi Germany avant la lettre. And they make it a crime to criticize slavery, a capital offense to criticize slavery even in the pulpit. They shut down free speech. When Northerners give speeches against slavery in the Capitol building, like Charles Sumner, they're, they're caned and their heads are smashed by Southerners who don't want to hear it. Abraham Lincoln gets zero popular, not electoral, popular votes south of Virginia um, because they just shut down discourse and then they take up arms against a duly elected government when Abraham Lincoln is elected. Well, the North wins the war and insists on the 13th Amendment, which they're able to ram through only because the South isn't there. The South is unrepresented. That's the movie Lincoln. It's a very heavy lift. Phew, job done. Wow, amazing. Immediate, uncompensated, uh, universal emancipation of a sort that would never have happened if the South hadn't left. But here's the problem. Here's the bitterness. And here I end. It turns out the 13th Amendment isn't remotely enough. Because you might think, wow, that's a lot. Immediate, universal, uncompensated emancipation. No northern state that had a lot of slavery had ever done that way. This is like Russian Revolution-style redistribution. But here's the problem, and it's the, um, what I call, uh, with apologies, um, the oh crap moment. Um, when the framers of the 14th, uh, the, the Reconstruction Republicans realized, oh my God, three-fifths has just become five-fifths, because now we've gotten rid of slavery. These guys are going to come back in with more voting power than ever before, and they're not letting blacks vote. We need a completely new amendment to say not just no slavery, but everyone is equal, because you can be not a slave and not quite equal. Everyone is civilly equal. And um, if blacks are disfranchised in the South and they shouldn't be counted um, in representation purposes, the South isn't going to like any of these. Oh, and Congress is going to need to have a lot of power to vindicate civil rights. So all of these things the South is going to be and was bitterly, bitterly opposed to. Every single, and even some Northerners, every single Democrat in the Congress, the anti-Lincoln Party, votes against the 14th Amendment. Every single one. And every single Republican, except one person, votes for it. So and, it's a and total party. How did, party how did they uh, wind up getting adopted then in the end? Because uh, the South won't be let back into the Union. As, you know, the condition of coming back in is you've got to ratify the 14th Amendment. And eventually, also, another condition is you have to let black people vote. And so um, the 13th and the 14th and also the 15th Amendment, the Reconstruction Amendments, they were... Um, intended to help reconstruct the South in part uh, uh, to help uh, uh, recognize and, and uh, uh, protect the rights of the former slaves and their descendants. Did, how did the Supreme Court uh, uh, factor in here? Did, did it help? Did it hurt? And either one of you. Uh, I'll just say one thing and then we think the Supreme Court has always been on the side of angels when it comes to rights. That's not true. Remember the Supreme Court in the pre-Lincoln period, they're basically picked by Andrew Jackson's party, and they're, it's a pro-slavery party, and they're pro-slavery justices. They're going to give you the Dred Scott case that says blacks can't be citizens. Oh, and, and free soil laws that Congress passes are unconstitutional. Oh, and, and only citizens have rights, and blacks can't be citizens. Well, the 14th Amendment's going to try to undo 
all of those things. Um, and then the question is going to be, will the Supreme Court read these new amendments very broadly and generously, the way the Supreme Court of old read all the pro-slavery compromise in the Constitution in a very broad way? And Heather's going to give you the answer. The answer is no. <laughs> no, 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 no. They shirked their responsibility in some senses because... The text of the Constitution instructed them what to do. They knew why those amendments were there, and they nonetheless did everything they could to avoid enforcing them. There's a particularly shameful example, the great Justice Holmes, whom we revere. There's an amazing example of a voting case where blacks were clearly being deprived of the right to vote. It was clearly unconstitutional. And Holmes concocted the most absurd kind of lawyer's lawyer's argument to get around ruling on the case. So this is, um, you know, this is... These How does that things... happen? You say it's so, it was so clearly unconstitutional, and yet... Well, if the 15th Amendment guarantees blacks the right to vote yeah. and blacks aren't allowed to vote, it probably violates the Constitution. This yeah. one isn't... No, but my question was, how does uh, Justice Holmes find his way to uh, rule otherwise? Well, so Justice Holmes, it was actually... You, you see in that opinion what judges are thinking at the moment that they're deciding these cases, which is, these are paper guarantees and we don't have an army. So I think the judges thought to themselves, there are limits to what we can do in a world where everyone is opposed to this. And so without robust enforcement from Congress, without efforts from other other parts of the other branches, without popular support, the court often feels quite constrained about doing things. There's 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 a phrase, you know, the court always follows the election returns. That's not true. The court sometimes is ahead of election returns, runs against election returns. But it is a powerful worry for justices. And you can see Holmes basically saying, we just don't have the ability to fix this problem. But what you were asking for is that we can't remedy. And, but it's even worse than that. Heather is, she, you know, she's my boss. She's such a great boss. But she's so nice to Nobody everyone. Nobody is a killed she's, boss, I'll just tell she, you. <laughs> she's, she's actually, even in her criticism, being too nice to the justices because when Congress does step up and try to pass civil rights laws, when there is a political coalition um, to, to help the, the newly freed slaves, the courts invalidate what Congress has done in an infamous ruling, eight to one, John Marshall Harlan, the great Justice Holmes, who will later dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, is the sole dissenter in the civil rights cases of 1883. You haven't heard a lot about them, but you should, because Congress in 1875 passes a law that basically says no race discrimination in public accommodations, inns, um, motels, um, uh, 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 places of public amusement, like Disneyland-type places and, and, and the like. It's a, a prototype of what you, we all know as the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but Congress passed it in 1875, and the Supreme Court, 8 to 1, invalidated it. And, and if that law had been simply on the books, if they'd been willing to enforce it, when, and that was in 1883, 13 years later in Plessy versus Ferguson, all the court would have needed to do is just enforce the congressional statute that said, oh, yes, no race discrimination, no racial inequality in railroads or steamships or places of public transportation as well. So, but what do they do? They uphold a Louisiana law, and blacks aren't voting, and it's just a state law that, that provides for segregation, which isn't equal. They uphold that while invalidating a congressional law passed nationally um, and coming from a Congress where actually um, some constituents constituencies, actually blacks were voting and some lawmakers were black. They invalidated that one 
um, and they upheld the, the other one, and all they had to do was just follow the congressional law, and they refused to do it. And they held it unconstitutional. They held it unconstitutional. Yeah. Okay, so um, there are a lot of, uh, of uh, famous and important uh, 14th Amendment cases that we could talk about. We don't have very much time. Do you have a favorite 14th Amendment case? Heather? You know, so I'm going to pick one that you probably haven't even heard of. Uh, it's a case called United States versus Windsor. And it was the case before Obergefell, which is the famous case where the Supreme Court declared that same-sex marriage was mandated by the Constitution. Uh, and the case that came before it was about a federal law. And it was the first really powerful sign that the Supreme Court actually might go all the way in Obergefell and say that same-sex marriage would be the law of the land. So here's why I like this case. Because, and I'm the only one in the country, or at least in the academy, <laughs> that likes this case. So what Justice Kennedy does in that case is he talks about the history of people giving meaning to the 14th Amendment. So he, typically when you have a 14th Amendment case, you start with the text, and then you talk about the cases, and then you make a ruling. Justice Kennedy tells the story of the couples involved. He tells the story of people working on the ground to make same-sex marriage possible state by state. And, he, and as he weaves the story together, he tells a story of how rights are actually created. That is, you can have anything you want on the text, in the text of the Constitution, but rights are like families. They're built, not born. Right? So he tells a story of how this right was built, how people lobbied their neighbors, lobbied their legislature, changed people's minds, and built something that allowed, in some states, for same-sex marriages to exist. And federal law prevented the federal government from recognizing those marriages. And Justice Kennedy says, in a, in a way that's a little bit unclear, is he talking about a federalism decision? Is this something that the federal government can't do because of state rights or state power? Is it an equality decision? The federal government can't do this because it's unequal? Um, he doesn't really make it clear, and that causes academics' heads to explode. So every academic who wrote about this, this uh, opinion, except me, said, this is all muddle-headed. What is Justice Kennedy thinking? He doesn't seem to understand constitutional law. Federalism is different from equal protection analysis. But what I liked about the opinion, and this is why I'm the outlier, is it's actually true. It might not actually fit with the analytic categories that lawyers use. I'm willing to see that immediately. But it tells the truth about how rights are created and vindicated. So the paper tiger of the Constitution, the 14th and 15th Amendment, they became real because of the civil rights movement. Right? They became something more than just paper guarantees because people's minds were changed and judges' minds were changed and enforcement mechanisms were created. And Justice Kennedy tells that story. It's a really unusual thing for a judge to do because they usually pretend, oh, no, we just discovered these rights. We opened up the Constitution and look, there they were. But in fact, Kennedy acknowledges that we're not the only ones who create constitutional meaning. The people create constitutional meaning. So I love that case. Great. Thank you. Akil, a favorite case. Um, I'll cheat a little bit. Apparently, when I was four years old, my, my parents asked, you know, who was my favorite? They were just having fun with me. But I apparently said that I love mommy the most and daddy the best. So I'm going to pick two. Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, so here's... One, I want you to close your eyes and try to think of a really important 
bill of rights case. Some really important case, whether you agree with the outcome or not, about liberty in America. Now, the odds are that actually the cases that are popping into your head, strictly speaking, aren't bills of rights cases, because the original bill of rights, the first ten amendments, applies only against the federal government. It begins with the words, Congress shall make no law of a certain sort. It ends with the Tenth Amendment about states' rights. It's about local militias in the Second Amendment and local juries. And many of the cases that you probably were thinking about involve states and localities. Uh, New York Times versus Sullivan is an Alabama law. Um, Griswold versus Connecticut. Um, Connecticut. Lawrence versus Texas. Gideon versus Wainwright is, is Florida. Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. Tinker versus Des Moines, et cetera, et cetera. Brown, uh, um, uh, um, so um, uh, Roe versus Wade is a Texas law. Um, so so um, the most important set of cases decided by the United States Supreme Court, led by, since I was dumping on the Old South, led by a, for, uh, by a Southerner, by an Alabamian, um, a former senator from Alabama, who had been in the Klan, um, uh, actually, early on, Hugo Lafayette Black, led by a Southerner, the Supreme Court applies, incorporates the Bill of Rights against the states using the 14th Amendment. Here are the words. And so this is the one favorite, the the set of incorporation cases. What does the First Amendment say? Congress shall make no law, which will abridge. What does the 14th Amendment say? No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge fundamental rights. Shall make no law abridge. The same words, but now states and localities are um, limited. And, and the Bill of Rights is reborn. It's a new birth of freedom because most of the cases that you actually care about, when you think about it, actually involve states and localities doing bad things. The original Bill of Rights didn't apply to that. The 14th Amendment was, I believe, designed to apply the Bill of Rights against the states, to incorporate these rights against the states. And Hugo Black said it first, initially in dissent, and then got the Warren Court to go along. The second one is also an idea that Black first championed in dissent. Um, And the case in which he finally got the Warren Court to agree is called Reynolds versus Sims, establishing this basic elemental principle that we call one person, one vote. And before that time, most states were malapportioned. Many states were grossly malapportioned. One district would have 1,000 people. It would send one representative to the state legislature. Another district would have 100,000 people. It would send one representative to the state legislature. Massive discrepancies. When the Supreme Court in Reynolds versus Sims, per Earl Warren, building on... Hugo Black, initially in dissent, says that has to end. State uh, districts have to be equal sized. One person, one vote. It's a revolution in America, completely. So these two things, Warren Court using the 14th Amendment, revolutionize America, applying the Bill of Rights against the states and proclaiming this extraordinary principle of one person, one vote. Um, I thought I would mention a case also. Um, I'm actually... uh, teaching uh, at Harvard Law School uh, this semester. Not Yale, uh, but Harvard. Yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm teaching uh, Asian Americans and the law, and we're studying Yik Wo v. Hopkins. And this is uh, sometimes referred to as the Chinese laundry case, and it was decided in 1886 
barely 20 years after the 14th Amendment was adopted. So it's pretty early on in the Supreme Court jurisprudence. But two Chinese immigrants in San Francisco operated laundries, and they did so in wooden buildings. They, they were there for more than 20 years each uh, running their, their, their hand laundries. And then in 1880, San Francisco passed an ordinance making it a crime to operate a laundry in a wooden building. You needed to have a building made out of brick or stone, ostensibly because of concerns about fire. And so the two Chinese immigrants, uh, Yik Wo and Wo Li, were arrested and convicted. This was a criminal uh, ordinance. Um, But the Board of Supervisors, you, you could have a wooden building if you had consent from the Board of Supervisors. And 200 Chinamen applied for the consent, and all 200 were denied. There were 80 non-Chinese who applied, and all 80, with one exception, were granted consent. The one exception was a woman. Um, And uh, to its credit, the Supreme Court held that the ordinance was unconstitutional uh, under the 14th Amendment. And there were two very important aspects of the ruling. One was that even though the ordinance was fair on its face, that is, it didn't say anything about Chinese or refer to the Chinese, it was unconstitutional in its application, in the way it was being applied. A very important concept. And secondly, the, 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 the court also held that the 14th Amendment protected the two laundrymen, even though they were immigrants, they were aliens, they were not citizens, they were indeed uh, subjects of the emperor of, of China. But, but the point was the Equal Protection Clause applies to persons and not just uh, citizens. So it, it's actually uh, you know, one of the more important cases that's taught in con law. And we go back to Dred Scott, which, to remind you, in 1857 said three things. Um, that Congress couldn't prohibit slavery in the territories, which was preposterous. That's what the Northwest Ordinance did. That's what the Missouri Compromise was about, prohibiting slavery above a certain line. It said Congress can't prohibit slavery. Well, that's rendered moot by abolition, by the 13th Amendment. That blacks can never be citizens. The first sentence of the 14th Amendment says, oh, yes, they can. Everyone born in America is born a citizen, equal citizen. And the third thing that Dred Scott said is only citizens have constitutional rights. And the 14th Amendment, as you just heard, goes out of its way to say, well, citizens have certain rights, but above and beyond that, there are basic rights of persons, quintessentially, paradigmatically aliens that are protected. Heather also, in her very first comment, said something. She talked about the equal protection of the laws. Most people, when they think of equal protection, actually um, translate into the protection of equal laws. Laws are supposed to be equal, and that is really important. But Yik Wo reminds us that even when the law looks even-handed on its face, actually, if it's being applied in an unequal way, there really isn't equal protection of this formally equal law. It's also a great example of the difference between human facts and lawyer facts. So the the statistics that uh, the judge just shared with us are terrible for human beings. But if you are a lawyer and you hear those numbers, oh, those are good facts because you know it's a good case to litigate. It's a terrible thing about lawyers. There are some some great cases in in the early uh, era involving uh, Chinese immigrants. There's a case involving a San Francisco ordinance that allowed 
the sheriff to cut off the queues of of uh, the Chinamen. There, Ho Akau V Noonan. That's right. There, there, there is a case involving bubonic plague. Um, uh, the government was quarantining uh, Chinatown um, and only Chinatown because of ostensible fears of. Um, of bubonic plague. And this case actually was cited to me recently by Yale law students in a case involving uh, Ebola. Um, and uh, it's a case from, from back then, too, that, that is an early example of uh, equal protection law uh, in action. Um, Heather, has the concept of equality evolved over the years? You, you, you alluded to this earlier. It has, and I am a beneficiary of that yeah. fact. So, for example... Um, for a very long time, the Equal Protection Clause was not fully extended to women. Uh, and because of all the work that was done around the ERA, people's views changed. And with that change came a change among the justices. And so they began to extend the same sorts of protections uh, that were available on, on the, in the context of race to women and, and giving women much more robust protections under the Equal Protection Clause than they'd had previously. So. It, it, it changes over time. It evolves. The other really great example is the same-sex marriage movement uh, because that's another example of a place where it wasn't that long ago, and I, you know, some of you I know remember this time, when the Supreme Court said it was perfectly constitutional to throw someone in jail for engaging in same-sex sodomy. And then a not so long later, I mean, really not even a... a or even a, interracial marriage. A, yep. Interracial marriage is another great example. The Supreme Court actually... Tur- the justices decided in a case called Lawrence versus Texas that this, that not only um, was this unconstitutional, this practice, but also they turned to their fellow justices who had written the earlier opinion and said, that old opinion called Bowers versus Hardwick was a stigma. Stigma mm. is a word that you use in equality cases because it means that what you've done is you're, you're staining someone's reputation. You're treating them unequally. And that, that changed almost on a dime when you think about history, even though it took an enormous amount of work to get there. Yeah, um, last week, uh, our court, the Second Circuit, decided a case called Zarda, Z-A-R-D-A. And it's a great example of of the evolving concept of of equality. Um, We held that Title VII protects against sexual orientation uh, discrimination it was unusual because it was an en banc decision, meaning the entire court uh, decided. So 13 judges participated, and it was 10 to 3. Uh, there, three judges uh, dissented, not because they disagreed with the concept, but because they felt that the statute, the words of the statute, did not extend to sexual orientation uh, discrimination. Um, when Congress enacted Title VII in 1964, Congress was not thinking about sexual orientation discrimination. Very, very few people in the country were. Um, And in fact, sex discrimination made it into Title VII only at the last minute. It it wasn't there originally and, and, and was added at the last minute. And suddenly, discrimination on the basis of gender as well as race, color, and religion were, were unlawful. Congress did not have uh, sexual harassment in mind when it was thinking about um, uh, uh, the statute. Um, and this is obviously long before the, the Me Too movement um, and, 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 and sexual harassment was, was not something that, 
that people worried about in 1964. But eventually, over the years, the notion evolved, and, 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 and uh, the, the Supreme Court passed a law that, that said that sexual harassment is discrimination on the basis of gender. And so our court has now held that um, um, sexual orientation discrimination is indeed uh, discrimination based on sex, and therefore it is covered by Title VII. Uh, the Seventh Circuit, you know, which sits in Chicago, has held the same way as we have. And the Eleventh Circuit has gone the other way. So it's now set up for um, perhaps uh, there's a circuit split for the Supreme Court to decide. Any thoughts on what the Supreme Court might do? Well, it's a statutory case, um, yeah. and but one with constitutional overtones. Heather started us off in such a beautiful way talking about um, on affirmative action, a liberal perspective and a conservative perspective. One nice thing is everyone, liberal and conservative, agrees on the rightness of Brown versus Board of Education. So we actually have a common core, and then there are different interpretations. Um, actually, you've heard an evolutionary um, uh, point of view. Um, if Hugo Black were here, he would have actually said, no, I agree on the result, but I have a different way of thinking about it. It's not evolving. It's rediscovering the true principle that was always there. So back to the history of the 14th Amendment. It doesn't say race. It was about race, of course, but it was about more than race. It could have said race. The 15th Amendment says no discrimination in voting on the grounds of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. So what kind of equality is it if, it go, if, it, if it's about race but about more than race? Well, if you're an, a non-evolutionary person but you're trying to identify what the principle was all along, here's what you might say. Here's what, what, what I would say, and I don't know how it applies to the statute. But I do know when it comes to the Constitution, which is very short um, and you have to take seriously the deep principle, everyone born in America is born a citizen, born, in effect, an equal citizen. We're all born equal. We're all created equal. Now, what does it mean, created equal? And that's what, Jeff- and, and that's what Jefferson said but didn't do. And that's what Lincoln Believe four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, by which he means all humans, okay? Um, and it's our fathers and mothers. Uh, and, and what does it mean to be created equal? I would say you're equal whether you're born, created, black or white, or male or female, or Jew or Gentile, or gay or straight, or born in wedlock or out of wedlock. It's a deep enlightenment idea Martin King is going to talk about it, that you're judged not by how you were born, by what you do, by, you know, not the color of your skin, the content of your character. So if you're a Hugo Black-like person, you're not just evolving. You're seeing the true meaning. And he- but Heather is right. Maybe you don't see it unless there are lots of people out there helping you see it, crusading every day, whether their names are Martin Luther King or originally Susan B. Anthony and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who loved the language of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, precisely because it was gender neutral. They didn't like Section 2, which put the word male in the Constitution yeah. for the first time. They didn't like that one at all. Oh, boy, they didn't like that one. But, but it, it, it is an interaction of, you know, if, if you're not an evolutionary person, finding the true principle, maybe applying it in light of new understandings. Maybe actually they didn't understand back then that people see, perceive themselves as being born 
gay or straight. They, they didn't have Gaga saying, you know, men, you know, people are born that way. So Heather? I will say um, that was the most elegant failure to answer a question I think I've ever seen. Uh, so, and, and there's a reason why Akhil avoided it. It's, it's very hard to, to answer. It's very dangerous to answer these questions. Yeah. I know because I predicted on national television, as my family always reminds me, that Bush versus Gore would come out the other way. I, I literally said the equal protection argument, which, by the way, was the grounds for the ruling, has no legs. Now, I still maintain that the equal protection <laughs> argument has no legs. And I was I'm right about you. that. And but, I'm with you. But the prediction was wrong. So it's always dangerous to predict what I, what I will and say. And we were all wrong on that. <laughs> Heather was with all of us in predicting. Well, you need to tell that to my family at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> But I will say, for, for the, 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 the piece that, that Akilah began with, um, it's complicated when you interpret a statute like Title VII yes. because it's Congress taking the power that it has under the 14th Amendment to protect the groups that are protected under the 14th Amendment. And the court is sometimes of two minds when it interprets that kind of statute. And it'll, I think this will depend where Justice Kennedy is. On the one hand, they think... If he's still on the court? If he's, if he's not on the court, then I will predict. Yeah. Um, uh, but if he's still on the court, I, on the one hand, they say to themselves, look, if we make a mistake when we're interpreting the Constitution, only we can fix it. Congress can't come in and fix it. But if we make a mistake with regard to the statute, then Congress can fix and it. And if Congress had wanted to do this, it has had ample opportunity to do so. And so the court may just read into that Congress does not intend for the statute to apply in this way. That would be the sort of stickler version of the narrow view of the statute. On the broader level, though, and I see this in voting rights cases all the time, constitutional overtones often mm-hmm. affect the way the judges read these statutes. Certain statutes. Certain statutes. So the voting rights... Well, particularly right, in this area. Yeah, I think, so you know. exactly. So in the 14th Amendment, the Voting Rights Act, there are often things that are read into the Voting Rights Act that really don't have much to do with the text or history but have everything to do with the court's evolving understanding of equality under the 14th Amendment. So, so if it, that, that, that could lead to the Because other just to remind everyone, we've talked about Section 1, everyone's born a citizen, no state shall abridge, make or enforce any law which shall abridge fundamental rights. The last section of the 14th Amendment, which echoes the last sentence of the 13th Amendment and presages the last sentence of the 15th Amendment, all three of those end with the words, Congress shall have power to enforce this by appropriate legislation. So these are amendments drafted by Congress, for Congress, contemplating very vigorous congressional enforcement. The Supreme Court invalidated an effort when Congress tried to do this in in 1875 in the 1883 civil rights cases. Shame on them. But when Congress did it again in 1964, the court actually upheld congressional um, power. And these are civil rights cases enforcing a civil rights amendment and voting rights, civil rights statutes enforcing, uh, enforcing a civil rights amendment, voting rights statutes enforcing voting rights amendments. So these are case um, statutes with constitutional overtones. But I will say, if uh, Justice Kennedy is not there and yeah. uh, President Trump has an opportunity to appoint someone new, I think the way that many of these cases are looking to Justice Kennedy is in the sort of old Star Wars way, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you are our only hope. Uh, so I think that if, if there's another, justice odds are pretty severely against it. All right. Why don't we move on? Uh, we've, we've actually been given quite a few uh, cards with questions. So maybe I'll, I'll jump into the questions. Um, there was one here that was um, on uh, uh, a topic that we were... Well, here, here's one. 
probably the most prominent use of the Equal Protection Clause in recent years was in Bush v. Gore, since you, <laughs> you're the election law expert. You're helping me nurse my grievance. <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe the use of the Equal Protection Clause was honest? Uh, why or why not? Whew, that's a hard question. No, so, that's a big, fat, hanging curve right yes. over the plate. <laughs> you will knock it out of the park. Come so, on. So I will say... Um, the, for those of you who haven't read Bush v. Gore, what Bush v. Gore says is that uh, the way that the ballots in um, Florida were being recounted at this moment um, when everyone was, you know, when, the, when our election was almost uh, literally hanging on a chad, uh, yeah. is that they said that the recount had violated the standards of equal protection because different standards were being used at different parts of the recount process without reflecting upon the fact that the recount itself was a remedy for just as terrible, if not a far worse, equal protection violation, which was the disparities in the way the ballots were counted the first time. Uh, There's also a really, I won't get too into the weeds, but a terrible decision on the remedy. So was the court honest? I actually, this is where I differ from some of my colleagues. A lot of my colleagues have condemned that decision as pure, vicious partisanship, just the Supreme Court choosing a president. I don't think that. I think that if you put them under a lie detector test, that they would have said and would have understood themselves to be engaged in an act of statesmanship, to have been engaged in an act that was appropriate for a judge to do. Here's my quarrel. Um, I think, though, if you're a really good lawyer and you're really thinking hard about your pre-commitments and the weaknesses in your argument— I think it was a weak argument. I think, given past precedent, it was impossible to understand. Uh, it was, and and given the existing situation, that it was actually a, it was a really weak argument. So, so it was happening quickly. That this is why judges deliberate. You shouldn't decide cases that important so quickly. Mm-hmm. I think everyone. I mean, you think about how polarized we are now. Um, everyone had us sort of were hyper aware of partisanship, yeah. and I think. So I think honest, yes. A good decision? Definitely not. Um, a related question from, from a, a, a second uh, person in the audience uh, is, is, is um, if the courts at the federal level are becoming overly politicized, um, arguably this case, what might the implications for civil rights protections be? Mm-hmm. Thank you. I'm happy to answer this one, too, but I don't know. I I, I worry about this all the time. Uh, Well, on Bush versus Gore, I agree with everything that Heather said, and here's now the one additional point. Because the defense is, well, it was an act of statecraft um, because someone had to decide and the court stepped up. The country was divided right down the middle. Um, The Congress was, each house was divided, actually, you know, uh, uh, um, on on a knife's edge. Florida was divided right down the middle. The Electoral College was divided right down the middle. Someone had to come in and bring the country together, an act of statecraft. And, and I would have forgiven what the Supreme Court did, which is just make stuff up, if they had been united, if they had been un- unanimous, which they weren't. At the end of the day, on the final bottom line vote, they were 5-4. And, 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 so so, and, and, and going back to the, a case that we just alluded to just in passing, but really deserves to be um, mentioned, Brown v. Board. Um, see, because Heather began saying, well, there, 
you know, some are for affirmative action today and some are opposed to it. And, and they disagree. And I say, yes, but they, both, they all actually agree on the rightness of Brown. And Brown was 9-0. Um, and it's, I think it had a, a, maybe a certain, for law professors, not everyone agrees with this. We actually had a, 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 a faculty presentation recently, a very distinguished one, saying, gee, you guys are fetishizing unanimity. That's not such a big deal. But Brown was 9-0, and that says something. A Republican Chief Justice appointed by a Republican president, um, Earl Warren appointed by um, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, presiding over a largely um, Democrat-appointed court, uh, Democrats appointed by um, Democratic presidents, FDR and and, and Truman, and they were all uh, agreed. So uh, of one mind, unanimous. John Marshall presides for a very long time over a court where he was appointed by a fed, the last Federalist president at the very end, John Adams, but increasingly his, his brethren are Jeffersonians, and, 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 and yet he manages again and again to create a sense of, of unanimity. So um, the, the way to think about your question, I'm dodging it again, Heather will say, but, and she'll be right. I'm going to answer the question. Okay. Um, is... Um, uh, uh, are the justices unanimous? And the answer is, on a fair amount, they actually are. But on some of these that so divide the country, they seem to be as divided as the country. Yeah, so, I'm, I, so I teach two things, election and federalism. And I think they're both central to how a democracy functions. And I have a terrible worry that we are going to fall apart if we can't talk across party lines. That is... Democracies depend on two parties not viewing one another as monsters. And to the extent that they do view one another as monsters, it is going to be impossible to govern. So I have thought up in that, that one of the sort of saving graces of the last year has been judges, uh, because they have actually defended the rule of law and not understood the rule of law to be something that is partisan. Because rule of law values in our profession are nonpartisan. They date back to the Marshall Court. They run all the way to the Roberts Court. And there's widespread agreement among lawyers about the rule of law. And you might, you know, you might ask yourself, how is it that the profession that is you know, of hired guns taught to defend anything, how is it they, that, that the profession that will defend anything will actually believes in something? But the rule of law values are the values that emerge when lawyers spend a century arguing about them these are the values where there is no argument on the other side. We've tested it over time. We've tested all these values. There is no argument on the other side, which is why the profession unites around them. And judges to this point have actually done what you expect judges to do, which is to defend the rule of law, to engage in craft, to produce decisions that often have people from both sides of the aisle on which there is widespread agreement. And as long as that continues, I'm going to feel better about our democracy as everything else becomes so polarized. But if judges begin to view these cases not through the eyes of the profession, not through the eyes of a judge, but through the eyes of polarized politics, just the way everybody else is doing it, then we are done. And here are three examples in the modern era. Richard Nixon was ousted by a unanimous Supreme Court in which three of the eight, one recused himself quite properly, three of the eight justices who ruled against him saying, you have to hand over the tapes, were Nixon appointees. Wow. 
in the biggest case of his lifetime, the current chief justice, John Roberts, the, the Obamacare case, sided with Democrat appointees. I happen to think he's right, but even if you disagree, it was not partisan. He crossed the aisle. Wow. And then he did it again in a case called King versus Burwell, which involved statutory interpretation, and he didn't gut the statute. He actually read it faithfully. Wow. Uh, Heather has, uh, on several occasions, mentioned Anthony Kennedy. Here's one thing. She is a preeminent scholar of, of election law and, therefore, the role of political parties, ours, uh, we live in a deeply uh, polarized world in which the most conservative Democrat in Washington is still to the left of the most liberal Republican. That, didn't, that wasn't true in 1960, but it is true today. I told you every Democrat opposes the 14th Amendment in Congress. Every Republican except one is, is for it. Um, so we li- that was politically polarized. Today is politically polarized. Eight of the nine justices, well, four of them were Republican appointees, by a Republic, um, uh, uh, who were appointed by Republican presidents and confirmed by Republican senates. Four were proposed, nominated by Democratic presidents and confirmed by Democratic senates. Only, actually, Anthony Kennedy was nominated by a president of one party, Ronald Reagan, and confirmed by a senate of the opposite party. Um, uh, and it's not altogether surprised that more than anyone else, he sometimes joins um, uh, uh, one side and sometimes other, the other side in very big cases. His process was actually a, a bipartisan process of nomination and confirmation. I, I would just add this. Um, the, the Supreme Court is more complicated, of course, but when you are talking about the rest of the, the federal uh, judiciary, politics almost never comes into play. The vast majority of our cases... Um, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or something else. But, and I think that all judges really do believe in the Constitution and the rule of law. It also helps to have lifetime tenure uh, so we don't need to worry about an unpopular uh, decision. Being primaried from the extreme. Yeah. I also think it's lawyers' training. I, I, I'm sorry to preach yeah. the values of the profession, but sometimes I think that um, politicians could learn something from lawyers these days. The lawyers are taught from the very first moment that they walk into a classroom to argue for the, the side that they loathe. Not just to argue for it, but to sympathetically and imaginatively reconstruct the very best argument on the other side. You can't be a lawyer without the ability to do that. And you can't be a lawyer without the ability to understand the weaknesses in your own argument. If you don't do those two things, you can't be a good lawyer. What that means is that we are able to go to war without turning the other side into an enemy. We know there are fights to be had, and there are certainly fights to be had these days. But one of the things that a lawyer teaches you is, sure, go fight the good fight, but just remember what's honorable on the other side's commitments and what's what's weak in your own commitments. And I feel like that's yeah. The way judges understand that the best of judges... You think about both sides. Yep, they, yeah. they, 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 they press themselves on every yeah. argument. Um, one, one more question. Um, what do you think is the most important civil rights case currently uh, before the uh, Supreme Court? If, uh, if we're allowed to include an election law case as a civil rights case, which I think it is mm-hmm. sure. properly understood, uh, I, it's the partisan gerrymandering case up in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court has for a long time regulated almost all party politics pieces, election administration, campaign finance, internal party dynamics, but has stayed away from partisan gerrymandering. So the one-person, one-vote cases that that Akil describes 
got us some of the way down to the road to equality, but you can still have districts that are perfectly equal and yet constitute vicious partisan gerrymanders. And so we're seeing states where the vote is 50-50, but one side always controls two-thirds, even three-quarters of the seats. And the question is, will the Supreme Court step in in this case? And if it doesn't, then 2020 is going to be just as much of a partisan bloodbath as 2010, with, the except, with one exception, which is that it, parties are just getting better at holding power and preventing themselves from being voted out. And if democracy means anything, it has to mean that when the people change their mind, the legislature changes. And unless the Supreme Court is going to rule on that issue, then we are going to move into another redistricting cycle where democracy is not functioning properly because majorities, when they change, aren't going to be able to change the law or the legislature. I agree with Heather. That's the most important case. And in the spirit of trying to, for you to hear the strongest argument on the other side, um, here's what I would offer up. Um, one person, one vote was actually a pretty, there was a pretty clean judicial solution. Um, the, the districts have to be equal. Equal size. Now, in fact, that masks a little bit. Well, what has to be equal? Equal number of actual persons, equal number of lawful persons, not counting so-called um, illegal aliens or unauthorized people, um, uh, equal number of citizens, even not counting the denominator uh, um, uh, permanent residents, equal number of eligible voters, registered voters, voters in the past election, but still, something has to be equal, and equal means equal, and, and you, know, you have to get to decide, you have to decide, well, plus or minus 1% or 3%, but still, it was pretty manageable. Equal means equal, and judges can come up with equal. Um, now, uh, what exactly a neutral district map means is going to be a little trickier. Um, uh, how traditional districting criteria of compactness contiguity, um, traditional district lines, reflections of community of interest are going to actually work. It's going to be tricky because there is gerrymandering, although we need a definition of what gerrymandering is, and that's not the easiest thing in the world. Um, But here's what we liberals, I'm a liberal, do have to understand. Some of the disadvantage that we face electorally has to do with a thing called geographic clustering. We tend, we liberals, to live um, in cities, and we win cities overwhelmingly the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side, et cetera, et cetera. And when we win districts overwhelmingly, urban districts, we're wasting a lot of votes when you win 80-20 because you only need to win 51-49. And in lots of societies around the world that have single-member districts, when there's increasing urban clustering and people are actually separating, they're choosing to live apart from each other, the urban party tends to be underrepresented, even in the absence of gerrymandering. That's true in New Zealand. It's true in Britain. It's true in some states. Oh, and there's gerrymandering. Now, how the Supreme Court's going to sort all that out when there's not something as clean as um, one person, one vote that actually fits with what the previous cases have said? Oh, it's going to be tricky. Keep, you know, keep your eyes out. Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.